Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, all. Before we begin, some quick announcements and a note about today's show. First, just a reminder that the links for the weekly news recap at the end of the show can be found in my Facebook Bulletin newsletter, which is at laurashinbulletin.com. There you can find additional articles on news not available on the pod or in my daily newsletter. Be sure to subscribe today. Second, my book, The Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the Making of the First Big Cryptocurrency Craze, is available for pre-order on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Bookshop.org, or any of your other favorite bookstores. Go to bit.ly slash cryptopians. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash C-R-Y-P-T-O-P-I-A-N-S to pre-order today. Finally, today's episode is a panel I moderated at NF Castle, put on by the Czech noble family, the Lobkowitz family, at their palace in Prague Castle. It was a wonderful weekend, bringing together 200 artists, builders, collectors, and more for a day of panels and talks, tours of the family's art collection, and its NFT exhibition. And it concluded with a gala dinner and live entertainment. I'm not going to lie, one of my favorite parts was getting to dress up for the gala, especially after being locked in our homes for the pandemic. But what I really fell in love with was the fascinating mission of the Lobkowitz family and how they're combining old and new in a novel way. I'm excited to tell you more about it at a later time. But first, take a listen to this really engaging panel discussion about legal issues around NFTs. As I know many people in the space are getting interested in NFTs right now, or beyond interested, obsessed maybe, this is a good discussion to give you a heads up about any potential issues. Enjoy the show. Wish you could earn crypto but don't want to spend thousands on hardware? Just download the Nodal Cash app on your smartphone. Visit nodal.io slash unconfirmed. That's N-O-D-L-E dot I-O slash unconfirmed to start earning Nodal Cash today. The Crypto.com app pays you up to 8.5% interest on your Bitcoin. Get $25 when you download the Crypto.com app with code LAURA. The link is in the description. Tired of your exchange taking 25% of your staking profits? The Avado blockchain computer allows you to stake Ethereum and other crypto at home and keep 100% of the rewards. Go to ava.do. All right. So um, in the last panel, we discovered all different kinds of NFT controversies. And um, one big one we didn't touch was all the legal controversies. And there are many um, from many different sides, which is a super fun thing. But why don't we quickly have each of you just sort of introduce yourselves and then we will get the discussion started. Awesome. Hi, nice to meet everyone. Uh, my name is Jonathan Victor. Uh, I work on product in BD at Protocol Labs on things uh, like IPFS, Filecoin, and NFT storage. Um, I'm Louis. I'm part of the product team at Monax. Monax is a digital property management protocol, um, really helping creators and owners to derive values um, in a safe, from their digital ownership in a safe and compliant way. And really two layers to this. There is the protocol primitive layer, and then there is the tr- 
trustless legal layer that we're building. My name is Diana Stern. I'm a product counsel at Stripe, which is a global tech company that helps online businesses start and scale. And I've been working at the intersection of blockchain and IP for some time now. Hey, everyone. Uh, Sean Marudian. Uh, I guess I'll start with the views and opinions I share today do not, are solely my own opinion and do not express uh, the stance or any views of the company that I work for. Um, but that being said, I, I run operations at Fractional, um, which is a uh, trustless, decentralized, community-driven um, fractionalization platform. Um, which basically, in simpler terms, it allows, if you own an NFT, it allows you to democratize the access to that NFT um, and basically uh, allow you to turn them into fractions for other collectors to buy who have been you know, traditionally priced out of it due to the current market conditions and really provide them access to the communities around those NFTs. There's been a lot of discussion about community today and also even new communities that have, we've been seeing form around those specific NFTs. Um, and so I run operations there and, uh, yeah. It's going to be a great discussion. I have to plus okay. one the disclaimer as well. Oh, okay. Right, of course. All the disclaimers. <laughs> we can get them out. It's the legal panel. Um, so why don't we just start with a really basic question. This kind of goes back to the previous panel. You know, what is an NFT? But from a legal perspective, when you buy an NFT, what are you buying? And I'm guessing maybe the lawyerly res response will be, it depends. But anyway, who wants to start? I mean, I'll go. Uh, I think the answer is it depends. Uh, so with the NFT, literally, it's just like, what is the URL that's inside of there? And depending on who you're buying the NFT from or like what platform is minting, there could be a variety of things that they put in there. And so I think at the lowest level, uh, ideally, people think, and they are, buying like a link to at least the asset. Uh, so that picture, that video, that 3D rendering, and that thing, at the very least, they own a digital representation that they can move around on like Ethereum or whatever blockchain. Um, but practically, I don't think that necessarily imbues other rights, and I think that fuzziness and that grayness leads to open questions where people aren't sure if commercial rights come with those assets, or if maybe specifically that's something that's owned by the artist and that needs to be granted separately. Um, so I think part of this is because it's a new space, there's clarity that just needs to be created. Uh, and I think standards will emerge, and some orgs are already taking steps on that front. Um, but yeah, really does depend. <laughs> Diana, did you? <laughs> I have a slightly, uh, I, I mean, I, I think it's true that you are not generally getting, you know, owning the underlying image. But the crazy thing is it usually depends on the terms of service of the marketplace you buy from. And all of those marketplace terms require you to go, you know, read paragraphs and paragraphs of, of legalese, and sometimes you do get a license to the underlying art, sometimes you don't, and the rights that you may have, sometimes you have commercial rights, sometimes you don't. Um, so it's actually quite complicated to figure out what you own, because of course someone can buy on one place, uh, one marketplace, have certain rights, resell on another marketplace, and they might not even have the rights that the second marketplace says you're representing that you have. So it's a bit of a mess right now. And wait, so when that happens, then is it just whatever the most recent sale was that those are your rights because that was where you bought from or like, or, or I guess these questions need to be worked out? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. I, I think probably right now that's the easiest way to think of it, but I'd be really interested if anyone ever takes this to court and you have to kind of go back and trace. I mean, we have great provenance. You could go back and trace sort of, okay, well, what rights did you actually end up having? The, the thing I would add to that, too, is um, I think unpacking what it is you're buying is probably valuable to the audience as well. I know I've had a couple conversations with folks like, well, how do you understand an NFT? Um, 
but before going into that too, related to the rights associated with it, um, it's not defined currently, right? There's no law on record that I know of that uses the term NFT anywhere in a document. And so it's such a new idea. Uh, NFTs specifically have yet to be um, officially regulated in some tangible way. But in uh, related to what you're buying, when you're buying an NFT, as uh, John mentioned, it's a certificate to something that exists, uh, or a, a digital image. However, you'll hear the concept of off-chain NFTs, on-chain NFTs. There's also this idea of IPFS, which is a uh, decentralized storage system. So essentially, when you buy an NFT, ultimately it's a token that's on Ethereum or other chains uh, that's non-fungible. We've covered that topic. But the image associated with it is where it gets... Uh, it, can, it can vary. So if it's off-chain, the token itself has metadata within it that links to either a URL or some database that's hosting that image. And so that just tells you, hey... I own that image that's hosted on the database. But if that database is essentially managed, there's that question of, in 100 years, what happens if the company managing that database goes down and that image is gone forever? Now you just own a token that links to something that doesn't exist. So that would be off-chain, and there, there are issues there, right? Problems there. Um, there's also this idea then, okay, what if you decentralize that storage, right? And that's where IPFS comes in, which stands for Interplanetary File System. Um, when you get people on the internet, that's the, those are the names they come up with. Um, and so, essentially, uh, that IPFS is a way to host that image decentralized way. As long as users on that network continue to propagate that network, it's more likely to be there longer term, right? And there are storage constraints to Ethereum, which uh, make it difficult to uh, store like a large, let's say, 4K video or high-definition piece of art directly on-chain. Um, and then there's pure on-chain storage, which is when the, the token itself actually contains metadata written into it in which you can take that code, put it into, let's say, a compiler or some other area where you could run program or run code, and it will reproduce that image. And so all the things you need to create that image are on-chain and always immutable and always stored when you buy that NFT. And so I think that's an important thing to understand for when we say NFT, there are different ways in which um, the data and what you're buying are stored, and which could also change the question of what are you buying. Louis, did you want to add anything? Yeah, sure. Uh, I think there are a lot of different use cases. If we take just the basic ownership use case, um, say, Laura, you're stealing my seed phrase, you're stealing my NFT, code is low, but are we going to say that you're the proud owner of my NFT? Not really. Are we going to be able to make the case to like a broader like set of ownership that this is the case? Probably not. So I think we're missing a number of recourse mechanisms around edge cases. Then there is uh, the cases of yeah, I'm, I want to I want to lend you my NFT. I want to license my NFT. I want to sell my NFT with specific rights around it. Like right now, we're just signing with a MetaMask wallet in a browser. None of this is here. But if we're thinking about like what makes a, a buyer, a borrower, or anyone accept something, it's not signing a MetaMask transaction. It's uh, really like clearly accepting terms around a transaction. Could it be sell, buy, swap, land, license, lease, anything? Yeah, so one related question that keeps coming up is, you know, whether or not a creator can imbue certain rights into their work. But actually, before we get there, and I really do want to get there because I was discussing this beforehand with Mitchell Chan, who did something super interesting. But why don't we just actually also establish that when you're a creator, 
what rights do you need to have to the original artwork in order to create the NFT? Like, do you have to be the copyright owner? Like, what happens when someone just, you know, takes a photo that's popular on the internet and, like, creates an NFT of it and sells it? Like, does the original creator of that photo or that digital artwork have any recourse? Like, what, you know, from the creator side, um, you know, what rights are associated with an NFT or, or need to be? Anybody can go. It's, it's just, if you have a thought, speak so, it. Yeah, I mean, I think the cleanest would be if you own the copyright outright. So if you register with the copyright office, you own the copyright, you can do what you want with it. But alternatively, if someone licensed that work to you or it's licensed under Creative Commons, then you can do, you know, depending on what Creative Commons license it is, you can use it um, to create an NFT. I mean, there's kind of a question of, how exactly are you using the image when you mint an NFT out of it? Is that a derivative work? Are you maybe a form of distribution? Because there's certain rights that you have under um, a copyright act, including distribution and creating copies and derivative works. So you kind of have to think about how you are using the art when you are creating an NFT. But if you, and then what happens in the case where, let's say I'm some famous photographer or something and I've created a, a photo and someone else like you, you decide to make an NFT of it and you sell it. And let's say Louis buys it. Then, um, I say, Hey, that's, that's, I, that's my photo. So what recourse do I have and what recourse does he have? And do you just make off with the money because, you know, got bought in ETH and you don't have to send it back or how does this all work? Yeah, so hopefully the marketplace that's listed on has a notice and takedown policy. So you could follow that DMC. There's a, uh, in, the, in the U.S. anyway, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act has this process called notice and takedown where you give if notice to the marketplace, hey, someone has my copyrighted work on your website and doesn't have my permission. And then the website would like, you know, there, there's kind of a back and forth that can happen, but generally would remove the work. Um, I actually don't know the answer on what would happen for Louis if he, because he purchased the NFT and also as a practical matter, like, you might not want to send it back to, you know, Laura. So that is a bit tricky because of the permanence issue. It also gets a little complicated think? with, like, so we were just talking about when you create an NFT, you have this, like, reference that you're using. And if that's something like IPFS, it's not like there's a single person who's necessarily holding it. And it could also be the case that the same image has the same fingerprint that's used in multiple NFTs. So a takedown that affects, affects this like forgery NFT would also affect the real one too. So it's not like there's a simple answer of like we take it down. I think like it really has to come down to the marketplaces and what sort of standards are there. How do they do their vetting of the different artists that are like posting on the platforms? How they like have their own potential like recourse? Maybe like they don't do immediate payouts through Ethereum. I think this is the question when you have something that's permissionless, anyone can do anything, uh, which is both part of the beauty of the system, but also then the danger of the system. And so part of it is coming up with like the social consensus rules around how do we actually want to manage this process? How do we want to make sure that the original creators are able to retain the value of their work while also not creating artificial gatekeeper roles that make it difficult for people to create and actually share their work? That's interesting that you said that you wouldn't even know if he would want to send the counterfeit NFT back because I assumed that he would be like, I've been scammed, but you're right. They might be like, no, I, I've got what I want. I don't care that the person who got paid wasn't the original creator, um, which is interesting. But this, then this leads us to this next question about, um, so if I'm a creator and I want to imbue my NFT with certain rights, 
Um, does that mean that I can't sell on these other platforms that attach their own terms and conditions? Or like, how does it work? You know, because I mean, honestly, I, I think what the promise of NFTs brought to a lot of creators is, oh, I can, you know, program it to receive royalties in the future from secondary sales. And then when I interviewed Devin Finzer, the CEO of OpenSea on my podcast, he was like, well, you know, whether or not um, that can actually be enforced on second series sales is an open question. It has a clear. I was like, what? Like, you know, this is exactly why I'd want to do this. And he was kind of questioning whether or not buyers and future resellers will even want to, you know, send a bit of the royalties back to the original creator. Um, but yeah, so how, how can creators um, put rights that they want to put into each work into them in a way that sticks? Um. In my opinion, it's an open question for the space. If I was the CEO of OpenSea, it wouldn't be an open question. I would just respect the royalty standard, which they are not. And I, if I was a creator, I would just not go on OpenSea. I would um, try to bring together a bunch of builders in the space that will be able to like build a cross-chain royalty standard that's going to work across a bunch of primitives. And I wouldn't work with the... I mean, I love OpenSea, but I wouldn't work with the vampires of the space. Uh, and I'm saying vampires because they haven't been complying to the royalty standard, which is not a good standard, but it would at least be like a way to tell creators that they're here for them. And if we believe that, uh, I mean, we're all talking about financial inclusions and all of that, and if we want to help creators, we have to actually implement those types of standards. Otherwise, you're going to have some central focal points that are going to just like swallow the entire value and it makes very little sense uh, given all the very nice visionary sentences that we drop around around financial inclusion and such. Oh wow, so, I, so are you saying that actually OpenSea really isn't enforcing this? Because I, I didn't know that. I they have their own were... standards but like they haven't made any effort and none of the marketplaces, it's not just OpenSea. It's a bit like in 17, 16, 15 you had a lot of centralized exchanges that you just couldn't talk to because they were too busy making money. Right now you have NFT marketplaces that are too busy making money to care about those type of things. But if we're thinking about like the 10 year vision of what blockchain can bring to creators and to the creators economy like this needs to happen for sure and so i personally would love to have like a i don't know cross company cross blockchain cross dao initiatives really working on this um if anyone is interested i would love to talk with them <laughs> <laughs> and i think the jurisdiction question gets really interesting as well right because the nature of blockchain is it's cross borders it's composable across platforms where the people are buying from right now, as long as they're not a fiat on-ramp, like OpenSea isn't required to, you know, collect anybody's information, any KYC laws there. Um, and so having some sort of open collective to which creators could agree to, these are the rights or these are the standards we want to attribute to it, and it would in any way go cross-border would be, I think, really powerful. Um, yeah, yeah, a lot of complexities and considerations. I would say, like, the short-term legal hack that I would use is to put a link to the license that you want in the description field in the metadata of your NFT and when you mint it. Um, and I have a sample license on my GitHub if you want to use it. And yes, you would be competing with the terms of service of the marketplace, but I think you could put a provision that says, you know, this license supersedes the terms and marketplaces also might want to consider allowing artists and making room for artists to have their own license that do supersede their terms to just really provide clarity. 
Yeah, well, this goes actually to my conversation with Mitchell. I don't know where he is, Mitchell Chan, who was on a previous panel, but he was saying that he did some NFTs back in 2017 and that he um, put the metadata in the smart contract and he made it so you couldn't just buy it on a platform and you had to mint it yourself um, using... Uh, you could use Etherscan, which is probably the most user-friendly way, but he also had people do it directly using the Parity client, which is funny for those of us in the crypto space because that's not um, used widely anymore, if at all. I don't know. Um, but, you know, he was like, this is how I'm kind of overriding uh, what the terms of service are. So I think, I, I don't know, if, maybe Mitchell isn't here, but I'm just curious, like, how the resells are done then. Can you even resell that on OpenSea, or is it just people who are very technically savvy now traded or? I think OpenSea has an API that if you create like an NFT that meets the specs, you'll be able to like interoperate with them. Uh, and so, but even if you didn't do that, like everything on these open blockchain base layers still gives you the flexibility to like, if other people create a marketplace and you're compliant with whatever standards, it's just like a technical compatibility thing of like, can they interpret that what you've created is an NFT and then be able to like process? Um, yeah. Okay, so maybe it's not so challenging, but just in general, like, do you, do we feel that traditional regulations cover NFTs, or are there gaps? And if so, what are what are the big gaps and questions that need to be resolved? I think short-term DAOs are trying to take the lead. Uh, you could definitely take a, an NFT case that have proper uh, legal rights around them to court maybe a much longer process than working with a DAO, provided that the DAO is actually taking care of, of their community. So that's short term. Longer term, I think we said it 20 times today, uh, any asset is going to be an NFT. Uh, so once every asset is an NFT, I'm assuming that uh, like different jurisdictions are going to take a very, very strong look at it and, and start really thinking about it. But short term... It may take a bit of time to take your NFT case to court. Uh, better use a DAO or use smart contract or use other ways. Yeah. I think there's also like interesting questions of like if you think about what is an NFT. We talked about like the technical implementation, but really it's just like a set of standards that people follow. And so it could be in the future there is a third standard that comes out that supersedes 721 and 1155. And so even as we think about like what smart regulation like how do we have something that can evolve as the technology evolves? Because really it's like people coming on social consensus to implement a specific thing and then interpret it a specific way. And I think the same is true even for like respecting royalty rights. Like at the end of the day, it's pretty trivial if you wanted to, like to get around that. Like you could send an NFT to someone for zero cost and then have them send you the money out of band. And so like really it comes down to like how do we build up the right tools and like social culture around these things in order to actually enforce the things that we want to enforce, where it would be extremely frowned upon to like intentionally try to subvert an artist and not pay the royalty fee and things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And something actually really interesting, you mentioned royalties. There's also this emerging model of artists wanting, to, wanting their fans to uh, uh, benefit as well from the royalties of their works as well and per participate. And as fans of that artist also receive royalties as they grow. So there's like a platform called Royal, um, which enables just that. And so there's a question now where I think a gap in regulation could be, you know, now that if they own an NFT for this artist, which they love, they love their music, they were early there, they could show people, hey, I was listening to this guy before he blew up. Everyone loves being able to say that, right? They were there first. But if they're receiving royalties from that, 
does that turn the NFT into a security? And there's a question there, right? And with that, what does that mean then for the artist and everything surrounding it, right? And so those kind of gray area are gray areas that will need to be worked through. Yeah, I think the more exotic NFT structures can start to look like financial instruments, and so there will probably be gray area, but I'm not generally in favor of technology-specific laws, so I think generally the laws we have today should work. I mean, earlier there was some talk of consumer protection. I mean, the FTC regulates unfair and deceptive acts and practices, and state uh, attorney general generally have consumer protection authorities. So I think that we we have the laws we need. It's just going to be a question of how do we apply them and still allow the NFT ecosystem to flourish because we want a lot of creative use cases. We want to find new ways to use NFTs for artists to engage with their fans or other creators. So I think hopefully we can um, not have anything too horrible happen where regulators kind of dive in um, and we can sort of let the ecosystem grow. Someone else had said previously, like, NFTs can be used in many different ways. I think the most prominent thing that we see today is, like, art. But in the future, it could be, like, game assets, it could be tickets, it could be literally anything. Uh, at the event last night, uh, we had popes that were being given out, which are, like, little button NFT-type things. And so, really, when we start thinking about, like, how do we create smart regulation, I think a lot of it can't be as specific. And we have to be thinking about, like, what are the actual tri- types of harm that we're trying to, like, protect against? Yeah, well, to go back to what Sean was saying, I mean, I, to my mind, uh, not that I'm a lawyer, I'm definitely not a lawyer, but um, it does sound like, like a security if it's, you know, related to somebody's future earnings and you're getting a, a share of that. Um, but we did see that there was even an issue with a DAO that was doing something di- similar, the turtle DAO, is it DAO turtle or turtle DAO? I think it's DAO turtle. It got delisted from... It was OpenSea, I think, because uh, they were, you know, saying, like, there are these incentives and you get royalties and stuff like that. So, I mean, are are we all just going to agree that that's a security or do you feel like people are going to push the envelope? And, you know, how, how, because a DAO is not an LLC, it's like not kind of a legal entity. So I'm just curious, like, is that a gray area or is that just settled and done or? So, I mean, it's... Securities law is very facts and circumstances based for each individual case. Um, and so if I don't, I'm not familiar with that one particularly, like the facts and circumstances around it, but you know, if they're promising profit and if they're saying we are going to work hard to make sure that the thing you get is going to provide you that profit, the facts, the fact that they've communicated that, set those expectations and built it that way with the people buying it would make it that, right? Yeah, well, I mean, here we are, many of us are American, and so we're actually, we're talking about, this is how in the U.S. it would be decided, but when you have these global marketplaces and, you know, things that are considered securities in the U.S. are not elsewhere, which is why we have things like airdrops for everybody but Americans, um, you know, I'm curious then for these NFTs that maybe would be viewed as securities in the U.S., then is the marketplace just closed off to Americans and it's like that those can trade elsewhere, but is that how this is going to be resolved or should, should there be some kind of global agreement about it or is it just going to be continuing jurisdiction by jurisdiction? In my opinion, short term, if I was to launch such a project, I would try to be a bit creative to not fall under SEC regulation. I think Sora is a very good example. Fantasy game. Practically, you could say it's a security. You could say it's gambling. The UK laws is now saying it's gambling. So I would say for builders, I would try to be a bit creative. A huge gray area. 
And, and I, I think Europe is going to be, uh, Europe and other jurisdictions are going to be much easier than the SEC. But yeah, marketplaces, uh, the, the, if there are companies, there are companies and they have to answer to the SEC. So it's more you as a builder, what do you want to, what type of concerns do you want to deal with, really? One question that's interesting also is like, given how, I mean, these are permissionless technologies, anyone can spin things up. Like, I think the game of whack-a-mole will be much harder. And so partially this is going to be like a really interesting question. Like, how do different countries tackle this and like work together? Because if you can have anyone spin up a project, it doesn't take that many people. Like, the number of these projects, like, even if you just go on Twitter, you'll see a thousand of them that spring up daily. Mm -hmm. And so, like, how do we actually think about, like, reducing the rate at which, I don't know, things that are harmful for folks uh, spread? But, yeah, there's a lot of open questions there. So I'm going to bring all the bad stuff, but I think one thing that's worrying me from the legal standpoint is uh, money laundering with NFTs. If I want to launder money today, it's easier to sell NFTs than going on Binance or OKX, which is already not too hard. Uh, and so I think this is, this is coming, and that really makes me worry because regulators are going to come in, they're going to see that, and they're going to... I don't want them to take uh, just a very, like, generic approach to this because it's going to limit creativity, it's going to limit innovation, and that's, that's what scares me a bit about NFT right now. Is that as much of a concern when you have full provenance on chain and proper regulation at like fiat RMs? Like so long as at the places where people are able to exit, uh, is that as much of a concern if you can like with a block explorer and chain analysis like look through and see what was the history of transactions, what was the source of this address's funds and so on? Well, I think that's the point. It's because chain analysis and cipher trace on all those people they are making money off of telling regulators that bad stuff is happening. So very soon they're going to tell regulators that bad stuff is happening. Regulators are going to take a look and they may not have a very subtle approach to it. So that's my concern. In some um, countries, art laws already require a certain level of KYC. So I think it's probably a matter of time until we see that applied in the U.S. in the NFT yeah. context and probably already kind of a best practice. Yeah, so a couple of things. First of all, disclosure, CypherTrace is a former sponsor of my shows, which is why I get that out there. But this issue um, actually has already come up where um, I think for Coinbase's NFT platform, which they just announced, you're going to be able to participate just straight from your own address or wallet, and so you don't have to do KYC if you do it that way. But I think uh, FTX also announced that they were going to launch an NFT marketplace, or, th or they might have just launched it. And you have to do full KYC for that one. So um, KYC, for those of you who don't know, is know your customer. It's like giving your identity to the bank, and it's all, you know, to kind of monitor uh, money or to, to comply with anti-money laundering compliance rules. But what's funny is that you brought this up right now because literally right before I got up on stage, G-Money from the previous panel said to me, oh, by the way, it's so funny you mentioned Etherrock because we could have talked about another controversy, which is money laundering. He said it was people were surmising it was going on with Etherrocks. And so just, just to like lay out this process for people, I take it you have dirty funds and then you buy an NFT with it. And so you've kind of like then through that you can swap it into something else and cash out. Is that... Yeah. Simple. Yeah, I mean, if, uh, if I have a hundred of malicious people that are deciding to assign value to my JPEG, and then we're bringing up uh, like some more community that have no idea what we're doing, and we're just like minting and selling to them those NFTs, then we just have laundered money. 
And yes, there is cipher trace and chain analysis and such, but my only concern is that when we look at the SEC regulation, when we look at Malta, that has a lot of good intention, but that did really wrong, I'm just worried about regulators coming in and taking very, like, like a very simple approach to, to things. I think especially in permissionless networks, it becomes complicated to think about how do you write or get this balance correct, where you have things that are completely open and you want to enable people to like be able to participate. On the same side, you don't want to enable bad things to do bad there are bad people to do bad things. And so I think especially the KYC problem is not NFT specific. I think it's also like a DeFi problem as well. But coming up with the tools that do that in a way that doesn't just compromise everyone's privacy and also like for very good reason, if we all imagine that there will be more blockchains and more crypto in the world, it becomes much more dangerous if any individual entity can like like effectively dox like any user. Uh, and they just think about who are the worst people in the world. They would be able to dox other people. That's a bad thing to enable as well. Um, so I think it's going to be a challenging way of like coming up with the right tools, uh, the right processes, but yeah. Did you know that exchanges take up to a 25% cut on your staking rewards? But you don't need an exchange to stake. You can run a validator at home. Join thousands of solo stakers, get an Avado device, plug it in, deposit your stake, and earn the full reward. Avado created the best hardware and specific software to stake and keeps your validator on the latest version through auto-updates. One-time investment, 100% profit. Go to Avado. That's A-V-A dot D-O. With over 10 million users, Crypto.com is the easiest place to buy and sell over 90 cryptocurrencies. Grow your crypto with Crypto.com Earn, which pays up to 8.5% interest on your Bitcoin and 14% interest on your stablecoins. When it's time to spend your crypto, nothing beats the Crypto.com Visa card, which pays you up to 8% back instantly and gives you 100% rebates for your Netflix, Spotify, and Amazon Prime subscriptions. Download the Crypto.com app now and get $25 by using the code LAURA. The link is in the description. I also actually just wanted to shift back to the DAO question and relate that maybe to the earlier topic about um, IP rights. So um, I'm just curious. So we were talking about how originally, you know, if you're going to create or if you're going to mint an NFT, you should be the copyright holder. But we have all these DAOs that are forming and they're creating these different NFTs. So when a DAO creates an NFT, do they, does the DAO get the copyright or do you have to actually be an entity or like how does that work? I think the licensing use case is an interesting one. You have few DAOs now that are saying, whomever has one NFT of that collection can either or not build the derivatives collection. So pretty much making their own rules with code and some fallback mechanism when code doesn't cover. Um, and they can allow or not. Uh, and we've seen both cases. We've also seen people building derivatives collection without being allowed and without the NFT coming from a DAO either. So another gray area. We should keep a list of them because it's <laughs> <laughs> a long list. <laughs> it's a long list. And w w when you said that they also create a fallback mechanism, is that something that can apply across many jurisdictions? Or like, what does that look like? No, I think you, know, you would need to go to the DAO. If you go to a jurisdiction and oh. say that the DAO told you that, uh, I, I mean, I don't see, unless there are legal documents for the jurisdiction to look at, you're really trusting the DAO, which I think is extremely powerful. Uh, I just 
I'm not sure it's going to scale to all the assets, especially the real-world assets, but for the native-native digital assets, uh, I think it's, it's very powerful that DAOs are now realizing that they can define their own rules and be their own jurisdictions somehow. Diana, he looked thoughtful. I don't know if you wanted to add to that. No. Oh, no, well, I said Diana, but... Oh, oh sorry. <laughs> um, it's interesting. I mean, I'm trying to think of... So, I think someone had brought up earlier, or when we were talking about that um, in the U.S. anyway, uh, only humans can have um, original copyright ownership of something. Like there was a case where a monkey took a picture of itself and it didn't own the copyright. So if we're talking about like an algorithmically created thing that a DAO made, but, but we can go a little bit more simple. Like let's say there's a picture that someone in the DAO community created and the DAO wants to own it collectively. It's a little easier to imagine that when the DAO has an entity type, right? If it's a corporation or a nonprofit or something, because then, you know, our laws are pretty clear around that. It can go and register. So then how would you do it if you're, if you're not trying to, to, to do that? Maybe you, the DAO appoints somebody that is sort of their like IP portfolio owner and that person then can register the copyright and um, kind of be sort of, that's their, that's their role in the DAO. Perhaps that's one way it could work. Yeah, I mean, we're working on a contract for Mint. So, the, for example, the DAO would say this is the contract where if anyone wants to mint a derivatives project, they need to come to this contract and mint it. And it's going to come with a bunch of terms that, honestly, they don't have any jurisdiction right now. It's the DAO being behind those terms and saying, like, we, we are the entity that's going to assure those terms are enforced. And if the DAO is malicious, then, then it's, it's cooked. Yeah, NFTs are also kind of like a brand, though. So when you think about, like, Board Ape Yacht Club, for example, I saw earlier Yuga Labs owns the trademark. So what does that mean? Because, like, they've licensed, from a copyright perspective, each Board Ape Yacht Club owner has commercial rights, but they're not the trademark holder. So there's actually, I think, a lot of trust right now happening between the original creators of NFTs and the broader communities, which start to look like DAOs that might own them. I was going to ask about... Um I mean, when you have these uh, different groups and it, like if there's a conflict, then if it's a DAO, um, who, who, who can some, like, can someone go, is it just the, the jurisdiction of, or the court of, of their jurisdiction? Is that where they go to or how is all this decided? Like if there's a controversy over the IP that the, that the DAO owns, like they want to sue somebody for IP infringement maybe? I mean, it really could be anything because also I have a question for like the trademark is that would that be like according to the U.S. trademark? I guess I'm sure each of these things even start in a particular jurisdiction, right? Yeah, so you can get trademark protection in multiple jurisdictions. So you just would go in, in, in each country and you would get the trademark protection there. Um, and then similarly for copyright, I think that there's some ways to get kind of like multiple countries at once with your registrations. But yeah, you would just go to each jurisdiction and and um, do it that way. And, and some jurisdictions might. I think the difference in protections is some jurisdictions, when you are the creator of something that's copyrightable, you automatically have the copyright. There might be additional protections added if you register. Like in the U.S., for example, if you then register with the copyright office, it's easier to defend your copyright in court. So... Um, yeah, I just think it would be a market-by-market market analysis. Yeah, I mean, what I'm getting at is these are global things, they're global marketplaces, and then kind of, yeah, when, when, when there's a conflict, then it's just like, where is this decided? Because 
you know, up until then you can say, well, we'll work it out with the Dow or whatever, but then when they can't, then where do they go? And I think there's an interesting question about how do, like, different like jurisdictions come up with like better anchors that allow for like more of these questions to be answered ahead of time, like more recognition of like DAOs as corporations or whatever the appropriate structure is in the appropriate jurisdiction. But then you have more fallbacks to like existing tools that have already been built and thought up through like case law. And then there's something to like hook into where like there's less ambiguity. I think whenever there's ambiguity, then there will just be, as you said, there will be inevitably some conflict and then it will just have to be sorted out in the courts and people will make a case. Um, but we can create clarity, which can make it easier for folks to feel comfortable, like moving assets into the space and like operating. Yeah, and I like for areas where there would be kind of a standard real-world contract regarding that relationship, but then maybe the NFT has like something uh, conflicting. Like that's also interesting. Like how how do you square? Um, laws maybe that have already been established, but then the NFT or the DAO or whatever wants to create something new and they're trying to do something new. Um, and then someone could bring a claim saying, oh, well, you know, traditionally this is how this has been resolved. Do you, do you feel like then the courts will just revert to what's been done or will, I mean, we're seeing this happen in the um, crypto space broadly where it's this question like, do we need new regulations or do the old regulations apply? To some degree, we need new. Like, we were talking about the use case of, like, imagine you have a DAO that owns an NFT, and that's on Ethereum, and then during the ETH2 upgrade, we get two forks. We get, like, the proof-of-stake fork, and then the miners maintain the proof-of-work fork. Mm -hmm. Now you have two separate DAOs that exist that have both, like, ownership over their version of the NFTs, but, like, they both point to the same physical asset, potentially. And so there's a question of, like, which is the real owner, uh, and then, like, is a court going to decide that, like, one of these chains is the more legitimate version of Ethereum? Like, really, I don't think anyone has an answer to that question. Uh, but, yeah, it's an important one. Oh, could you try and solve that up front, though, by sort of specifying what happens in the case of a fork? Like, if it's an NFT that you're licensing out to other people and you say, oh, if in case of a fork, you know, this is the true version. Or, well, I, I guess what would you be trying to protect from the other... Well, so you could imagine different forks having different, like, potential problems. So, like, let's say you had written your contract to say, or, like, physical contract that's, like, the proof-of-work chain, and, like, you couldn't have guessed that Ethereum was going to split to do a proof-of-stake chain. Then, like, are you going to be on potentially the lear or less supported chain, and then does that, like, lose the actual authority? Uh, I think some of this speaks to, like, as the space evolves, we also need to have things that can evolve with it. So, like, when you're creating this DAO and the structure how do you have a process that's upgradable that can take in new information that may not exist at the time when you created it? I mean, my feeling is that the DAO should be focused on making new rules about what's possible now that was not possible before. All the basic stuff about copyrights and royalties and licensing. Well, I personally think that 95% of it should, should just be compliant with the, the current code. The challenge is the cross-jurisdiction I think DAOs should like have some policy or some thoughts about like how they're gonna how things are gonna apply across jurisdiction. Uh, so, example, uh, a DAO is minting NFTs that are co-created by ten artists. They are from ten different jurisdictions, and the DAO should do their best so everyone is compliant in each of their jurisdiction. And 
then the DAO is probably gonna build new experiences that, regardless, like th this is new uncharted territory, and they sh should just do their best to define their own rules there. But I think 95% of the basics should be should still be respected. But if a DAO doesn't care about that, uh, then it's it's everyone's choice to go interact with that DAO. To be honest. Yeah, for things like forks, what we have seen is that decentralized, oh, sorry, not decentralized exchanges will um, post notices saying, you know, this fork is happening, here's how we're going to handle it, we're going to go with this chain or that chain. Um, and so you could see a similar thing with DAOs where they say, oh, hey, this, this is going to happen if there's a second chain, this is what we're going to do. And at that point, people would have time to like sell their NFT or whatever if they didn't want to participate. Um, one other thing is that, like earlier when we did our little pre-panel call, we talked about um, kind of different types of standard licensing or, or whatever that could be um, embedded in into NFTs. And I wondered, like, do you see any movements to that? Like, Diana, when you said that right now, you know, a good solution is just to link out, um, then our are those creators just creating their own? And, and so it's not standardized, it's just like there's a bunch of different unique ones. Or are we seeing that communities are kind of coalescing around certain models that they, they would like to follow as standard? Yeah, I, I haven't seen people adopt it just yet. I, I think it is a good short-term solution before we have, you know, more standards around NFT licensing. But we can also leverage existing standards. Like Creative Commons is is quite good and helpful if you're a creator that wants to sort of let a thousand remixes bloom. That's a great license for you to consider. But yeah, it's it's not standardized yet. Like if I could imagine a world where you have when you go to mint an NFT, there's like an interface that provides you with a drop down of like five licenses with like a quick TLDR on what each one is. I think that would be awesome, but we're just not there yet. Um, the, there is a basic standard. I don't, I blank on the number. I'm going to try. I think it's 2781, but uh, it's covering very, very narrow types of, of transaction. It's only sell transactions on all the marketplaces have been, uh, have been ignoring them. I mean, we're working on this. I don't want to be prescriptive about the solution, but what I know for sure is that the solution needs to be NFT-centric, not marketplace-centric, because your NFT should be able to go anywhere in the space across chains. And it's not one marketplace that's going to ensure that those royalties are paid. It's, it's a logic that's going to be NFT-centric or asset-centric. So let's also um, talk, you know, since uh, we are here for this, um, you know, effort to help restore some of the, the works here at this castle. Um, I was also wondering, you know, when you have kind of this combination of NFTs and um, maybe like a financial effort, um, does that, you know, just mean that financial regulations will apply or like does it change the nature of the artwork itself too? Because um, it, it kind of goes back to what Sean was saying earlier. It's like, you know, if I buy a painting from an artist that I like, Generally, I'm just buying it because I like the artwork. Um, but suddenly, if it's like, oh, I could potentially earn more from reselling, and, and because I guess the thing is, you know, you, you would have that same thought, I guess, with an artwork. But since you don't kind of constantly see the market price somewhere, maybe it's a more abstract thought. Whereas, obviously, with NFTs, the financial aspect of it is more front and center. So, right. are are we just expecting that a lot of these will be treated? Uh, you know, as financial objects? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. And I, I 
kick around too the idea of traditional art and you know in art houses auction houses i think or art houses i should say and exhibits and, and exhibitions and galleries you typically do not see the price of the art next to the piece itself because it's about the artist it's about the story it's about the context surrounding that and then so when i think about applying securities laws to traditional art in some way um if nfts were to become if it were to become applicable there with securities laws comes of course the investor protections uh clarity transparency and honesty around it and i think so much about stories around art as well and in terms of how like proving the the accuracy of that story and also what the artist is saying that puts it'd be interesting to see the onus it puts on the artists for investor protections if it were to be considered a security and then how does that impact how art is received or viewed or interpreted um, would be interesting. But. I think a little bit about like, so NFTs, again, just being broad category of things, just because people are speculating on them and making money, does that necessarily mean that they are a security or anything else? Like Beanie Babies were never really considered securities. And so I guess like there's that question as well. And especially part of the reason this discussion even happens is because the prices tend to be quite high. But, like, that's partially an artifact of, like, what are the tools that we have today? Uh, and so, yeah, especially with Ethereum having high gas prices and stuff like that, the types of NFTs people are willing to min- tend to be art pieces. But, like, if NFTs turn out to be, like, game assets and, like, popes and all these other, like, lower-cost things where, like, yeah, you might just get them for free, uh, like, or even, like, at low cost, like, 10 cents for an NFT, then, like, if we come up with bad rules and, like, definitions of, like, what could financial security laws or whatever apply, like it's going to introduce a ton of complexity for a bunch of use cases that are totally adjacent. Um, Yeah, well, so what if it's something like we're going to fractionalize shares in the Mona Lisa and then you can buy a share and then, and this is how, you know, museums start funding some of their projects, then what would you say? I think that might be slightly different. And I guess it depends again, uh, our very like loose definition with Howie of like, you have to meet this like three part subjective test. Uh, and so there's a question of like, how is that sort of like represented to you as like a buyer? Um, I think this is where some of the complexity will come in. Um, if you are buying purely as a donation and like the only person who can receive it back is like the museum, maybe that's like a different thing. And the reason that you're doing it is just to be a donor of and like support the museum and get your name on like a plaque. If like the goal is that you're planning on like, I don't know, if it was like being treated as a security with like some promise of future profits or something else, that might be different. I think the weird edge case I think we were talking about with uh, earlier was what happens, or we were just talking about like music and like you buy an NFT, like a fractional NFT of your favorite rapper's first album. Is it a security because you're expecting him to create good future work? Uh, Unclear. Uh, I personally would say no, but uh, I think it's definitely a fuzzy thing. And that's partially just because of how we define a security is a bit of a fuzzy thing. There's also the community aspect that comes to it as well, right? Like, so if you were to buy a fraction of the Mona Lisa, I would ask, you know, is there a common forum for all those fraction owners to collaborate and talk about, you know, the history behind it or any sort of latest news around it, right? Like, how does it bring them together? Because when I think of a security, when I think of a share, like, you know, I own stock in Apple. I don't really care if other people do, and I don't have a way of seeing who else owns stock in Apple. It's not really something transparent to me. 
um, that I go out and I like I'm talking with them or communicating with them. Something about fractions of NFT, especially being a digital thing. I mean, with traditional art collectors, right? They typically you, you like to buy the piece. And you also like to display it. You like to show what you own. When it's physical and you own fractions of something physical, you can't really do that in a way that is as meaningful as maybe something digital. When it's a digital medium and you can show like, hey, I own this thing, and everybody shows it. It's a digital medium, digital native, and it, it has different properties than something physical does. Um, and there's also that community aspect as well of just, you know, be, being having that sense of uh, camaraderie with people, like in the sense of an album, right? Owning that, partaking that music, really identifying with it and the values that come with it, and just wanting to be a part of that club. I think there's also like, I mean, security, I believe, is like for securitized interest. So, like, if you were buying the thing, what is your securitized interest? Uh, and so, in the event where it's something where it's like you are a part of a community and like, it's not like you actually own a part of the Mona Lisa. You own like this representation that society is agreeing, like gives you some social like link to the uh, Mona Lisa. It's like a slightly different thing as well. And, and so then does that go to what you were saying about community that like, if it's more community based, then it's less of a security. Is that what the conclusion is or um, no conclusions, but it would definitely, if you look at the Howie test, it would definitely be less likely to be considered one. Again, it's all based on facts and circumstances of every time something is created and how it's treated. And so you'd have to look at the individual facts and circumstances of this particular instance. It, it seems like what we're saying with the community part is like the efforts of others prong of the Howie test, right? So an investment of money with an expectation of profit based on the efforts of others, you have to meet all three. And if you knock out, is it if everyone is contributing to the value of this NFT or this portfolio, does that knock out the efforts of others prong? But that's a really tricky test. Like there was a court uh, case where I believe there was a company that was breeding chinchillas. And even though like part of the way you got your return was that you like contributed to raising the chinchillas, it was still determined to be an overall security scheme. So even when you're participating in what creates the profit at the end of the day, there can still be situations where it ends up being a security. That said, I don't necessarily think that just because you're raising money with an NFT it's a security. I mean, there's crowdfunding campaigns that, that are securities, but there's also crowdfunding campaigns that aren't securities. So I think it goes back to Lewis's point of like, how do you uh, structure what you're trying to do so that it aligns with the legal regime you want to fit in? You might want your NFT to be a security, actually, because there's a whole world of, of you know, securities that you might want to play into. And you see that having a clear chain of title and provenance might be beneficial. Yeah. And, and to actually to add to that point, too, I mean, with the Howey test, it's right, the well, originally it was this uh, led to expect profits solely derived from the efforts of others. Mm-hmm. And that was from 1946, I think. And then in 1973, it was actually reinterpreted that solely derived from the efforts of others is actually shouldn't be taken literally. And it's more of like a mostly derived from the efforts of others. But the thing that precedes that is the expectations of profits, right? So when you talk about community, if everyone's saying, hey, we're going to make this thing more valuable, that's that's one thing, right? But if everyone's just, hey, I'm really happy I own this thing, and I'm like, for CryptoPunk, for example, right? Larva Labs, the ones who own the copyrights to CryptoPunks, are not going around and saying, hey, we are going to do X, Y, and Z, therefore CryptoPunks will accrue in value, and therefore you should buy a CryptoPunk. They're not doing that. They simply exist. There's 10,000 of them, and that's it, right? And so the market dynamics are, as exposure and visibility increases for CryptoPunks, they may go up in value, but that's due to market dynamics that are beyond the efforts of others or promises of profit, in which case it wouldn't be considered a security. Similar with art, right? Over time, what is value but the degree of importance we give to things, right? And 
that value may not be realized right now where we are, but over time it may be realized, in which case it may accrue in value. But there's no expectation of profit there or efforts of others related to that other than awareness. Another unsolicited advice, but I think like uh, compared to the fungible space here, we're dealing with art creation. There is a lot of emotion involved. There is much more than just like the financial value. And hence, there is so much room to avoid any like trouble with the SEC, frankly. Like just sell an experience if you monetize the experience. I think there are so many room for maneuver to make things not a security that my advice for the builders is just like build an experience that's safe and we really have this room to do it here in the NFT space that we don't in the fungible space. You know, that's, that's really interesting because obviously we're seeing people with tokens kind of wanting to push it. And I mean, obviously their lawyers are saying like avoid, avoid, but you know, we, I mean, we have even former regulators that leave government and say, there just needs to be new regulations. This is new technology. The old rules don't apply, which obviously the regulators do not agree with. Um, but it's just fascinating because I would say a lot of people do want to push the envelope and they, they think, well, it shouldn't be a security or it shouldn't be, a, you know, th- those regulations shouldn't apply. And no. so they want, they want to push the envelope. But we'll see if somebody actually tries to take it to court. Anyway, okay, well, we're out of time. This has been a fabulous discussion. Thank you so much. Thank you. There's a new cryptocurrency made for mobile that you can earn by downloading the Nodal Cash app. It's free, easy to use, and there's no hardware to buy. The Nodal Cash app allows you to earn crypto whether you're on the go, stuck in traffic, or even while you're sleeping. Nodal Cash is the crypto you earn 24-7. Go to nodal.io slash unconfirmed to get started today. That's N-O-D-L-E dot I-O slash unconfirmed. Thanks for tuning in to this week's news recap. Ethereum hits an all-time high as supply goes negative. Ethereum set an all-time high price for ETH at $4,674.90 on Wednesday, according to CoinGecko. That's a bit over 10 times its price just a year ago. Coinciding with the skyrocketing price is a new trend concerning Ethereum's monetary policy. In August, Ethereum's issuance was changed due to the implementation of Ethereum Proposal 1559 during the London Hard Fork, which instituted a policy of burning ETH whenever network demand increases over a certain threshold. According to the block, this change in issuance, or the network's monetary policy, has resulted in more ETH being burned than issued over the past week. Since October 26th, Ethereum's net issuance is approximately negative 12,000 ETH, or $54 million. Ethereum is becoming a deflationary asset, making ETH more and more scarce with each day of negative issuance. Also this week, CME announced plans to launch micro-Ether futures, sized at one-tenth of an Ether, on December 6th, adding an additional avenue for institutions to gain exposure to the price of ETH. The President's Working Group finally unveils its report on stablecoins. On November 1st, the President's Working Group published its much-anticipated report on stablecoins. While admitting that stablecoins could, if well-designed and appropriately regulated, offer faster, more inclusive, and more efficient payment options, the PWG spent much of the report outlining their risks. These include the loss of PEG due to stablecoin runs, payment system risks associated with blockchains, 
the systemic risk of a single stablecoin issuer failing, money laundering, and terrorist financing. To address the risks, the PWG called for Congress to implement legislation and appropriate federal oversight specifically regarding stablecoins. Notably, the PWG suggested stablecoin issuers be limited to insured depository institutions. If Congress fails to act, the PWG said it would ask the Financial Stability Oversight Council, or FSOC, to designate stablecoins as a systemically important activity, which would permit federal agencies to establish risk management criteria concerning stablecoin backing. In the interim, the PWG urged regulators, such as the Securities and Exchange Commission, or SEC, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, or CFTC, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, or FinCEN, and the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, or CFPB, to leverage their existing authority while Congress works to develop proper measures to regulate the asset class. In related news, Michael Sue, the acting controller of the currency, announced that the crypto sprint between the Office of the Controller of the Currency, the Federal Reserve, and the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation has concluded, and that the results will be communicated shortly. Sue hinted that the crypto sprint would help build a framework for regulating crypto banking activities. Get ready for an ENS token. The Ethereum name service, the protocol behind .eth domain names, announced plans to launch a governance token this week, transforming the organization into a DAO. It first asked community members to step forward as governance delegates in charge of the DAO, and then released the tokenomics of ENS. Users who registered and held an ENS domain before October 31st may claim ENS tokens starting November 8th. 50% of ENS tokens will be reserved for community treasury, 25% will go to a community airdrop, and 25% will be reserved for core contributors. However, on Wednesday, Nick Johnson, the lead developer of ENS, informed the community that the airdrop hit an obstacle in the form of airdrop farming, despite the company writing a lengthy ethics policy for the core team about keeping airdrop information quiet. It seems information about the ENS token drop leaked, allowing certain addresses to purchase and register a multitude of .eth domains ahead of the announcement, adversely affecting the distribution of tokens. Said Johnson, quote, We kept it need to know, but you'd be surprised how many people need to know ahead of the announcement. All it would take is one person chatting to a less scrupulous friend about vague details to give them a hint that this is worth trying. Johnson said that ENS will be manually blacklisting 784 addresses from the token airdrop in light of the farming. 6050i, it's out of our hands now. From the looks of it, the infrastructure bill, along with its provision 6050i, which requires parties to report social security numbers on trading partners for transactions over $10,000, amongst other information, will be passed in the House today, November 5th. The provision, which Coin Center describes as unworkable and unconstitutional, would make not reporting on such an event a criminal felony, according to Abe Sutherland in his appearance on Unchained in October. Jake Travinsky, a lawyer and strategic advisor at Variant Fund, tweeted, It's out of our hands now regarding actions to stop the bill from passing. He added, Importantly, nothing will happen right away. The crypto provisions don't go into effect until 2024 for fiscal year 2023 reporting. We can try to get them repealed or amended before then. 
Brian Brooks, now CEO of Bitfury. Former Binance US CEO and former acting head of the OCC, Brian Brooks, has been hired as the new CEO of Bitfury, a Bitcoin mining company. Brooks is replacing Valery Vavilov, who will stay on as chief vision officer as the company makes its way to a public listing, which it plans to do in less than 12 months. Brooks previously left Binance US after four months on the job, citing differences in strategic direction. Digital Currency Group raises $700 million at a $10 billion valuation. Digital Currency Group, the company behind Grayscale, Genesis, Coindesk, and others, disclosure Coindesk is a previous sponsor of my shows, closed a $700 million round this week at a valuation of $10 billion, as reported by the Wall Street Journal. The round was led by SoftBank Group's Vision Fund, Two, and Latin America Fund. GIC, Ribbit Capital, and Alphabet Inc. also participated. According to Dove Metrics, it was the fourth largest raise in crypto. Speaking of DCG, The Block reported the company is looking to hire a team of financial advisors for a wealth management subsidiary centered around crypto millionaires, citing sources familiar with the situation. Additionally, it appears the SEC is taking a closer look at Grayscale's application to convert its flagship product, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, or GBTC, into an ETF. In a November 2nd notice, the SEC said it was soliciting public feedback on the proposal. The Squid Game token was a scam. Squid, a Binance Smart Chain token based on the Netflix show Squid Game, saw its price rise over $2,000 per token before crashing to nearly zero after developers withdrew millions of dollars worth of crypto from the protocol and deleted all social media in an apparent rug pull. As Emin Kunsirer of Ava put it on Twitter, 99.99% drop on the Squid Game token. I mean, what did you guys expect? There's nothing behind this coin except it stole its name from a popular show. According to Barron's, an address was able to turn its nefariously acquired squid into $3 million in BNB. Binance announced that it had frozen and blacklisted wallets associated with the developers of squid. However, since the developers used Tornado, a coin mixer, it is unclear if the blacklist will stop the devs from cashing in. Consensus shareholders to begin legal action against Joe Lubin and Consensus Board. A group of more than 15 shareholders in Ethereum software company Consensus AG intend to begin legal proceedings against its board of directors, one of whom is Ethereum co-founder Joseph Lubin, over the formation of Consensus Software Inc., or CSI, whose investors include J.P. Morgan, MasterCard, and UBS. Their complaint centers around the transfer of intellectual property from the original Swiss firm to the new one, a Delaware-incorporated entity established in June 2020. They contend that the valuation used for the transfer of assets was for tax purposes, at a fraction of the market price, and not for M&A. They also say it was made without independent oversight, as would be required under Swiss law. The legal action comes as consensus is coming out of a few years of multiple rounds of layoffs and the restructuring that created CSI. And, just as it was said to be in talks to raise $250 million dollars, and seeking a valuation of $3 billion. Calling out MetaMask and Infura specifically, shareholder and former consensus employee Arthur Falls said in a press release, no Ethereum stakeholder would ever agree to part with these two products, products they were instrumental in building, for a combined value of $19 million. A consensus spokesperson said in a statement, 
We believe that these shareholders are confused on a number of key factual points. Two congressmen advocate for a spot Bitcoin ETF to SEC. Congressman Tom Emmer and Darren Soto sent a bipartisan letter to SEC Chair Gary Gensler, urging approval of a spot Bitcoin ETF, saying, Since the SEC no longer has concerns with Bitcoin futures ETFs, given trading has begun for these products, then it presumably has changed its view about the underlying spot Bitcoin market, because Bitcoin futures are, by definition, a derivative of the underlying Bitcoin spot market. Time for fun bits. The Bitcoin white paper is a teenager. Halloween 2021 was the 13th anniversary of the publication of the Bitcoin white paper. Penned by the anonymous Satoshi Nakamoto, Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer electronic cash system, laid the foundation for a new financial system. I've been working on a new electronic cash system that's fully peer-to-peer with no trusted third party, wrote Satoshi in the original email containing the white paper. He, she, they described the various properties of what is now a multi-trillion dollar asset class. Double spending is prevented with a peer-to-peer network. No mint or other trusted parties. Participants can be anonymous. New coins are made from hash cash style proof of work. The proof of work for new coin generation also powers the network to prevent double spending. And time for a second fun bits. Quentin Tarantino NFTs, no longer a secret. Quentin Tarantino, the famous film director, is minting six uncut and never-before-seen scenes from Pulp Fiction as NFTs on OpenSea. Tarantino is using Secret Network to publish the NFTs. As discussed on this week's Unchained, the privacy-focused network allows for metadata to be private, meaning only the token holder will have access to the scenes. Tarantino will publish the seventh NFT at a formal auction house. Thanks for tuning in. To learn more about NF Castle and the Lobkowitz family's quest, be sure to check out the links in the show notes. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Mark Murdoch, and Daniel Ness. Thanks for listening.